Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Just before we begin, a bit of housekeeping. We, the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, will be offering a six-week course on CBT for health professionals that I will be facilitating. The start date is March 24th, 2023, and it's going to focus on teaching the essentials of CBT through a series of weekly experiential training sessions. Uh, There's also a lot of didactic material as well. So in the workshop, participants are going to learn how to conceptualize client problems using the CBT model, individualize and develop collaborative treatment plans, and use cognitive reappraisal, behavioral experiments, and exposure-based treatments to help their clients. We're also going to integrate experientially-based exercises to help reinforce and practice core therapy skills. So for those who are interested, the course will be offered Fridays, again, starting March 24th, 2023, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All lectures will be provided by video conference, so hopefully this will help maximize accessibility for those who are not living in Ottawa. The cost is $600 Canadian plus tax. If you want further information or to register, please visit www.ottawacbt.ca slash news or email info at oicbt.ca. Places are limited, so please sign up now. We'd love to have a really good crowd out. I have facilitated this course a number of times and we always have a really great time doing it, so please join us. We'd love to have you. I also wanted to mention that this event has been approved for 18 continuing education credit hours for members of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association, or CCPA. Dr. Karen Dick completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at the University of South Dakota and currently works in private practice in Oak Bank, Manitoba. She is also presently the executive director of the Manitoba Psychological Society. Before shifting to private practice, Karen spent the bulk of her career working with the Rural and Northern Psychology Program at the University of Manitoba's Department of Clinical Health Psychology and is former chair of the Rural and Northern Psychology section of the Canadian Psychological Association. Dr. Melissa Thiessen completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at McGill University and currently works in private practice. Melissa also previously worked in the Rural and Northern Psychology Program at the University of Manitoba and has served as the Education Director of the CPA, overseeing the organization's accreditation and continuing education activities. Karen and Melissa both have a long-standing interest in self-care and workplace wellness initiatives. Recognizing that there are so many female mental health professionals like themselves who are trying to balance careers with additional caregiving roles, in 2019, Karen and Melissa co-founded Intentional Therapist. Their mission is to help female mental health professionals stay healthy and happy through intentional, creative, and playful self-care. All right, Dr. Melissa Thiessen and Dr. Karen Dick, welcome back to Thoughts on Record. I believe this is your third appearance, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Thanks so much for the repeat invitation. Yeah, so happy to be back, Pete. Very, very happy to have you both back. And I think uh, one thing that's really fun and interesting is that you are now podcasters as well and have a podcast that is tied to uh, the intentional therapist. I was wondering how your podcast experience has been going to date. Well, as you know, Pete, it's it's such an amazing opportunity to connect with other people uh, across the country, across the world. Uh, I think, I mean, Karen, you're welcome to to add to this, but I'm sure I speak for both of us when I say it's just been such an amazing opportunity to, to, to grow our network, but really most importantly, just make connections with people. It's, it's been such a great experience in that way. 
Yeah. And I think so informative as well, because, you know, of course, our conversations are linked to um, female mental health clinicians taking care of themselves and uh, just really interesting to, to hear some uh, themes that are kind of consistent across the guests we've had and just, I think, really validating for us and helping us to really appreciate why uh, female clinicians struggle with self-care. So, yeah, it's just been wonderful. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad to hear that you're having a, a great experience with it. And I would likewise echo everything that you've said. The opportunity to have a, a diverse array of conversations and, and meet different interesting people has just, I, I can't even describe the broadening of my perspective that it has afforded me. And I I always try to make the, I guess the, the litmus test for me when I'm thinking about a conversation is, would I want to have this conversation even if it wasn't released to the public? Like, would it just be an inherently and innately interesting? And I find after I walk away from recording an episode, it's like paid in full. Like it, it, the fact that it comes out after the fact is a really nice bonus, but I just enjoy having the conversation conversations themselves. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Well, as listeners of the podcast may know, because I had just mentioned that, and I'm sure they may have listened to a few of the other episodes that we've recorded together. They may even follow you. Uh, you are both co-founders and owners of the website Intentional Therapist, which has, you know, as you mentioned, a very strong focus on self-care for female mental health clinicians. But of course, the principles can apply to, to everyone. Uh, we've been able to chat a few times now on the podcast about the topic of self-care, which is, of course, incredibly important, but often only gets lip service or a surface level treatment. You know, I, I reached out to you both as I really wanted to have a discussion around a collection of issues that I feel comes up over and over again with clinicians that I know. And it, there's a lot of self-deprecating humor that I find tends to go around this issue in particular, and I'm including myself in that. Namely, imposter syndrome combined with the somewhat curious and paradoxical phenomenon of over-identifying with being a clinician. You know, of course, this is going to create a real tangly situation where you go all in on maybe the one aspect of your identity that you don't feel you, you legitimately have a claim to. And so that's obviously going to create some problems. So uh, I also want to integrate this with a little bit of a discussion on the legitimate demands of the job that have to be attended to. There, there's many, of course, but with an eye to finding balance where one is not feeling like they're chronically dropping the ball in the pursuit of self-care, which could be, become its own problem. Of course, humans never really stay in the middle of the road. We tend to sort of weave back and forth, like I'm all in on self-care. And it's like, no, oh, I've gone too far that way. And then we go all in on our jobs. So is it really about finding that kind of like middle ground? So how does that sound for a conversation? Yeah, that sounds great. Excellent. Okay. So I thought the first thing we could do would be perhaps to have a bit of a conversation around what is imposter syndrome. And of course, if you Google imposter syndrome, which I, I did, I mean, there's, there's a myriad of, of definitions, but they all seem to coalesce around the fundamental idea that one is not up to the job, one is fooling everybody on a chronic basis, and one will be eventually found out for being the fraud uh, that they are. Melissa or Karen, not sure who wants to go first, but I, I would love to hear from either of you, or I want to hear from both of you. How do you think about imposter syndrome? How do you hear imposter syndrome reflected back to you from the people that you interact with? Yeah, so I guess I guess I can start, and you know, I'll I'll be honest. I I also did a bit of reading um, in preparation for this conversation. Um, so it was, you know, it was, I learned some really interesting things that I didn't know about imposter syndrome, including, you know, that it, it was a, a term that was, uh, coined by two psychologists in 1978. And at that time, the, the, um, phrase was used to describe high achieving professional women. Um, and so the thought was that this, 
um, syndrome or phenomenon happens more in women, uh, primarily because of some, some of the gender stereotypes and uh, women internalizing that. So, you know, I, I, I just thought that was so interesting. And of course, now with, with more research, we, we know that it, it does also occur in men, uh, it might look a little different. Uh, but it certainly uh, is something that men and women can both experience. And what, what I found interesting about imposter syndrome is it kind of reminded me of some of the thought patterns I remember learning about related to depression, where successes we attribute to external factors, right? Unstable external factors, luck. People, uh, you know, it's just because I'm a nice person. So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm succeeding and our achievements um, or our achievements are attributed to external factors and our failures are, of course, um, due to internal stable factors. So I, I did find that uh, really interesting. And, and I will just mention what Melissa and I have been hearing about in our discussions with female clinicians is that there seems to be a, a close cousin to the imposter syndrome out there. We've kind of named it the ill-suited syndrome. And it, it seems to be a bit different. Um, what we're hearing is this experience of um, therapists saying that at some points in their career, they feel like they're not cut out for the profession. And it's not because they're not successful. They feel like they're doing good work. But when they compare themselves to others, they feel like they can't see as many clients as other people. Um, the traditional way of offering services as a psychologist doesn't seem to be a good fit for them. And because of that, they actually think about leaving the profession. Oh, that's really fascinating. Melissa, did you want to add on to that, that piece? Sure. And like Karen said, we sort of view this as kind of like a, a cousin to imposter syndrome. And, and again, some overlapping aspects, but, but some important differences. And, but I think one of the the overlapping pieces again is this sense of maybe I am not going to be able to hack it in in this profession, right? And and I think one of the interesting things about imposter syndrome, and that would also I'm sure apply to ill-suited syndrome as we're calling it, is is the reality that right if we are operating from this lens that we're afraid of how other people are gonna judge us, right? We're afraid that other people are gonna think less of us in our role as a professional, then that's gonna have a big impact on how we engage with our work. That's going to have a big impact on even, are we willing to do things to advance our career, for example, right? To maybe take little risks like starting a podcast, for example, right? <laughs> um, where what, what I've read in the research as well is that when people are really suffering from imposter syndrome, and I would imagine, you know, not that this has been specifically studied, but ill-suited syndrome as well, that's very much going to impact uh, how, how we, again, are engaging with the work, uh, really kind of limiting ourselves in our work. And then, of course, that almost can start to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you're not getting the same positive inputs as somebody who is maybe stretching their comfort zone just a little bit more and being willing to tolerate the discomfort of doing that and because they're not operating from a place of fear, right? I think in, in both of these scenarios, really there's, there's so much fear that is at play. And of course we know that when we're operating from a lens of fear, it not only impacts our thoughts, but very much impacts what we do or what we don't do 
as well. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of, of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon more generally too. Yeah, there's some really interesting dynamics here, I think, around maintaining factors, like you said, Melissa, where the fear might lead to someone to not taking chances, which could be corrective and help to undo some of the assumptions that one is working under. One of the problems with our our profession is that, you know, we work alone for the most part. We're sitting in our office all day kind of doing our thing and we might sort of cross paths in the hallway or virtual meetings, but we never really get to see our colleagues in action. And so I think we probably end up having these distorted projections around uh, our, our colleagues in terms of, oh man, they're working hard all day. They're seeing all these people always on top of their notes, getting those reports off within the deadline. Like it's very easy just to fill in the blanks with your own sort of schema driven kind of projections. And I think if we were to spend time with each other, say maybe working side by side in some sort of a thought experiment, we would very quickly discover that the ill-suited syndrome is uh, would apply to everyone because there's no one who's perfectly suited, I guess, is for what I'm trying to say. There's no perfect clinician or, or certainly even the average clinician is not perfect in the way that this ill syndrome syndrome is talking about. Yeah. yeah. And it, let's just repeat that for everyone listening. There is no perfect <laughs> clinician. <laughs> well, I think that's so true, but, you know, I think unfortunately, um, you know, there are, there are some, some factors at play here that can, I think, contribute to us believing that um, others are perfect. And, you know, some of the factors that Melissa and I talk about that kind of contribute to why self-care is so difficult for female mental health clinicians, I think also kind of feeds into um, the development of like imposter syndrome or ideas about um, what a successful psychologist or therapist looks like. And I think some of that absolutely comes from our, our training um, and, you know, I, th I think about just the competitive nature of it, right, um, in order to get into like a clinical psychology program, just as an example, um, and then trying to maintain your status there. Um, and, and I do think, unfortunately, I think we can probably all think about um, experiences we've had going through our education and training, where we've, we've had supervisors or mentors who when we look back on them, we're, we're kind of high on that perfectionism, right? And self-sacrificing. And I think it's just so easy to internalize those relentless standards. Um, and it continued to influence us in our careers, often kind of unknowingly. Yes, Karen. And this is exactly the second point I had wanted to make when I was following up on Melissa's comment was that, so there, there's, the fear leads to avoidance, which serves to only, you know, it doesn't give the chance to disconfirm the beliefs, but it, of course it can also lead to overcompensation as well through sort of like rabid perfectionism, working long hours, like trying to overcompensate for that felt sense of defectiveness. That also doesn't undo the assumptions, right? Because it, it, you of course conclude things are only going well because I'm doing X, Y, or Z at full speed. And if I wasn't doing those things, it would all collapse because I'm barely holding on as is. I'm so incompetent, I can barely get it together. It's only because of my compensatory efforts here that I'm able to hold it all together. And, and I think, again, I, I totally agree with you, Karen. The, the selection factors, if you think of what it takes to even get into a clinical PhD program, you can imagine all the personality traits that are going to be along for the ride for the duration of that journey. And then you see each other at case discussions and you whip each other into a froth. It's like, oh my God, I'm not doing that. And 
Yeah. So there, there's, uh, I think there's real cultural dynamics within psychology and, and, and personality dynamics too, that also contribute to this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I think there's, you know, been some pretty good research too, talking about um, certain populations that seem to be particularly impacted by this. And, you know, it's often, populations with, that are underrepresented in different careers, right? So uh, different uh, minority groups, marginalized populations. Um, so I think we need to be really sensitive and aware of that piece as well. And even thinking about, you know, at a higher systems level, what can we do to try and shift some of the the culture in our profession, whether it's related to standards or um, diversity and inclusion, microaggressions, what have you, um, how can we address some of the culture within our profession as a way of, of hopefully um, also addressing the frequency of, of imposter syndrome? One of my lessons from the podcast has been the invisibility of imposter syndrome. And what I mean by that is I have been so struck, and I'm not going to name, name any names, obviously, but I have been so struck by the some sometimes nervousness or anxiety I have seen in guests whom I thought, what reason in the world do you possibly have to be anxious about this conversation, especially with, that it's with me? <laughs> so, and I've just been so struck by that. Like you, you can't always see it or you wouldn't be able to guess it. It's, I think it's a good working assumption to assume that most people are carrying insecurities, uh, you know, along with, along with a sense of certain strengths, but no one is as inv invincible as we might think that they are. Again, especially if they are coming from a place, again, of being uh, marginalized or being underrepresented, of course, that's going to impact the confidence one might be able to bring into a scenario. And again, I, I totally agree. I think we underappreciate those dynamics. And Pete, I just wanted to add to both what you and Karen said. I, I think for sure the phenomenon of imposter syndrome is obviously characterized by this feeling of not being good enough and people are going to find this out, right? This is just kind of like... Somehow I'm I'm skating by, but before long the other shoe's going to drop and somebody's going to find out. Um, but I think there is also an element of that's slightly different than that. That's also about just not feeling like one belongs. And and then of course that makes so much sense when we are talking about people who are uh, a part of more underrepresented underrepresented uh, communities, right? That they're already. In particular, if we're talking about going into graduate school and whether it's psychology or medicine or some other uh, profession with very high standards for, for entry, right? People are probably coming into these scenarios already questioning perhaps, right? Did, did they actually get there on their own merit or, or not, unfortunately, right? And so uh, there can already be kind of this sense of, I'm not like the other people here, right? I don't belong. I'm People are not really going to see me for uh, for who I am, and so I think that that's a really important element as well. Because then, of course, that sense of not belonging is going to create a sense of disconnection from other people, and then again, that's just going to contribute to potentially more and more behaviors that are just going to reinforce the fears that the person has in the first place. Exactly. I, I want to have one more quick thought on this, and I'll, I want to transition into talking about some of the dangers of imposter syndrome, but. You know, I've done a lot of work with first responders, and one of the things that I end up saying to my clients is, or we have the discussion at least, is like, is anybody qualified 
to drive around an ambulance and pick up people who are dismembered and to take care of them? Is anyone qualified to show up and do death notifications or to, you know, uh, discover a suicide or, or things like that? There's, I think we have this sometimes this idea that just because you have, there's a uniform attached to it, or there's a job description or a salary that sometimes that will magically insulate you from the, the rigors and realities of a certain position. So I guess I would say for any psychologist that's wondering about whether they are suited for the job. I mean, I think most psychologists wonder whether, <laughs> whether anyone's suited for the job. Certainly I do. And uh, I, I do think there are those folks out there who are those naturally born sort of healers or, or, or clinicians. They just have all the right sort of confluence of all the holes in the Swiss cheese lineup as far as, you know, uh, putting it together and making it truly very effortless and very much aligned with, with their sense of self. And I think it only goes down from there. I think for the vast majority of people, what we face on a daily basis is is legitimately very challenging and requires a lot of growth to manage uh, successfully. So I'm not sure what you think about like the broad bandness of that sort of idea, or maybe maybe that's just, I'm projecting on my own ideas, but I'd be curious to hear what you both think about the actual sort of challenge of the job relative to the perception. Like maybe it's not just a perception. Maybe it's connecting with something that's actually true. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I think that aligns so well with some of the discussions Melissa and I have had about just the hazards of our profession. Um, And I, I think, I don't know about the two of you, but as I was doing my training, you know, the hazards of the profession and the stressors that come with this type of work were certainly not discussed, uh, you know, apart from kind of counter-transference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that really puts us at a disadvantage because I think it it inadvertently sends the message that once we're trained, this should just be easy, right? We should know what to do all the time and we should just kind of... Um, slide through our career in this really smooth way. But when you start looking at some of the hazards and some of the the research looking at stressors for therapists, there are a lot of hazards in our work. I mean, if you think about what it entails, essentially we're showing up to work having no idea what's what we're going to see in our office in that day and what's going to come up. And there's a lot of pressure for us, I think, sometimes to work miracles in a short period of time based on insurance companies' coverage <laughs> yep. and things, right? And, and um, you know, the, one, of the, one of the top uh, stressors that therapists identify is um, the uncertainty of success, which I think, right, just ties so nicely to imposter syndrome. And I think it's... I, I think it's important that we become familiar with the hazards of our work because they can be so validating and help us appreciate that this is hard work. It's very rewarding. It's natural to be uncertain about what to do when we're in different situations, because how on earth can training uh, prepare us for every scenario that we might encounter? It's just right. It's just impossible. Okay. So, you know, speaking of hazards, I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about the dangers of imposter syndrome remaining unaddressed because I think they're they're quite real. I made a list of a few off the top of my head, and I'd be curious to get your respective reflections on this. I think one of the big ones that I've noted personally and, and seen in other folks is it leads to a chronic sense of coming from a place of insufficiency. And this can lead to turning down opportunities. I think it can be especially tangly in the context of working with clients where I'm not going to bill for that no-show. I'm not going to raise my rate. You know, it's just me. I don't think I'm really worth this amount. I shouldn't really bill this much for an assessment or, 
you know, so I, I think coming from that place of insufficiency can really end up hurting the professional because the world is sort of has different expectations and a different sense of like the service that you're offering. And if you're kind of denigrating and downgrading yourself relative to that, like I think it, it could lead to a loss of respect and stature among the people who are expecting you to deliver the service and really sort of putting their their faith in you. So I'd be curious to hear uh, it, what, what you think about that. So definitely agree, Pete. I think that is a real risk of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. And I think that the other piece is potentially at least um, when, when someone is operating in that way, uh, what then can also start to happen is there's not quite exactly, I suppose, a contagion, but there can be a trickle down effect, right? So then this is how we operate. Maybe colleagues operate in a similar fashion. Importantly, if we're somebody who supervises others, they're going to take that same messaging in terms of sort of, you know, charging less than than the services are, are actually worth, than the training and education is worth, right? So, and and not that not, not to say that somebody who's suffering from imposter syndrome has to then also take on the weight of, I need to, you know, not, not be struggling with this so that it doesn't impact everyone who comes after me, but just recognizing that, um, that, that, that there is potentially a modeling effect that, that can come into play as well, which I think can be, you know, we can flip that around and, and use that then to our advantage to help to combat some of these challenges of imposter syndrome. And maybe we'll talk about that more later, but I, I think that is a, a real challenge that that can show up. And another thing that's really been um, noted in research as well is the link between imposter syndrome and compassion fatigue. And so, of course, that then is not only going to have a huge impact on the clinician themselves, but potentially is going to then also have an impact on the services that clients are receiving or the services that will be available for clients to receive if somebody is experiencing compassion fatigue to such an extent that uh, it leads to burnout and, you know, leaving the profession at least temporarily. So I definitely see that as, uh, as a, a significant impact, uh, on just the, how one is able to, again, engage in the work itself. Karen, I'll bring you in just, in just one second. I just have a real quick follow-up thought on what Melissa just said. You know, I, I wonder if one, it's not the only one, but I wonder if one of the vehicles by way, which one arrives at compassion fatigue is, I guess, one of the other things I was wondering about was, you know, does someone, does a clinician operating with imposter syndrome end up placing too too much responsibility on the client for validation and for a sense that they're doing okay and doing their job correctly? That strikes me as just being exhausting or, you know, overcompensating through a lack of vulnerability, like never admitting that they're wrong, limited flexibility, strict insistence upon policies where sometimes we all know they have to be bent at certain times as far as billing or, you know, things like that. So I think either way puts the clinician in an unbalanced stance, which is ultimately sort of unsustainable psychologically and can lead to sort of exhaustion. So Karen, I wonder if you had any thoughts on anything that Melissa or, or I have just said. Yeah, I'd actually like to kind of uh, highlight a bit of a, a flip perspective to compassion fatigue and, and that notion of compassion satisfaction. So um, there's also a relationship um, that's showing up in the research where um, there's like a negative relationship between compassion satisfaction and imposter syndrome. So, you know, the clinicians who are working with clients with trauma who are feeling um, a sense of satisfaction with that work um, seem to be less vulnerable to imposter syndrome. And what's interesting is some of the some of the factors that have come out 
as being um, kind of promoting compassion satisfaction are things like uh, supervision, um, like training in evidence-based um, methods for, for treating folks with trauma and uh, I believe self-care strategies as well. So it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to look at that, the flip side as well, um, in terms of, you know, what can we do as, as supervisors and mentors perhaps to um, contribute to compassion satisfaction and you know, hopefully by doing that, there might be some impact on imposter syndrome as well. That's a really interesting point. I had a couple of clinicians on the podcast in the fall who were, you know, heavily involved in the prolonged exposure uh, development of the prolonged exposure protocol. And I asked them this very question. I'm like, what's it like doing trauma work all day? Or, you know, could we reflect on like the, the load or the burden of doing that? And, you know, the really interesting response was, you know what, as long as you're sitting within these evidence-based protocols, it's actually, I wouldn't say fairly easy, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but, you know, you have a sense that there's a path forward for that can be successful, and it's really rewarding. And they both reflected that it's when we veer out of that and get into sort of more just the supportive, more amorphous, validating kind of work, that that's what leads to the burnout. That's what's more challenging. So I think, I, I think that aligns with what you're saying, Karen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so true. And, you know, in some ways, I mean, you could see how being being um, well-trained in evidence-based kind of validated uh, treatments, you know, ideally, right, you would think that that would also help us with our confidence and um, our, our uh, buffer us, I guess, against against imposter syndrome. Okay, so I think we've established that there's a number of dangers associated with an imposter syndrome, and I'll just add one more real quick. Is like you just never get the chance to internalize any chances that you're that you've made. Right? Like they they bounce off of the, the the perceptions that you have, and you can't integrate them, and it leads to all that decrease in confidence, like we've we've just talked about. I, I want to transition to talking about the idea of over identifying with being a clinician, and and again, it seems somewhat it's very curious and paradoxical, but. A lot of us do this where we go all in on our identity as a clinician. It means a tremendous amount to us. And yet we feel that we are not suited for the role or that, you know, we are going to get found out as not being able to occupy that identity, whatever that means. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this sort of phenomenon, uh, just as, as I guess, just as a phenomenon, we can talk about then some of the, the pitfalls of this or some of the signs or symptoms that maybe someone's gone kind of all in on their identity as a clinician to an unhealthy degree. Yeah, Pete, I think this is such an interesting observation and, and so true. And I think part of it comes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about just the nature of our training environments, right? There's high standards that have to be met to get into a graduate program in the first place. And uh, there are not only while we're training, but especially once we are practicing autonomously, there are the ethical codes, the standards of practice. Uh the maybe not for everybody, but for many of us, this constant sense from our regulatory bodies that we're kind of not allowed to take off our psychologist hat, right? Once a psychologist, always a psychologist. And uh, and of course, the ethical codes and the standards of practice all exist for very, very good reasons. And at the same time, it can put individuals potentially at risk for over-identifying with their professional identity. Uh, and you can also see how, you know, this sort of uh, happens often through no fault of one's own, especially when we think of the academic training model of 
particularly individuals who aren't in a, a professional psychology stream, but more of a research psychology stream, right? You're basically training for your supervisor's job. And so you essentially have to hope <laughs> that they're going to retire or leave that job at some point uh, in order for you to have a job, right? And it's not necessarily quite that dire, but but in some cases it is, right? There, there can be a real lack of, of positions and that's a different topic, but I think it just really highlights how there, for, for many of us, there really feels like there's so much riding on this professional education and, and the, the profession itself is really set up for us to really to ideally to have a strong identify, identification with our professional role so that we hopefully will act in an ethical and effective way with the people that we're working with, right? So again, good things, but it definitely can come with, with drawbacks of, you know, first and foremost, kind of equating our work with our worth, which obviously is uh, not going <laughs> to always be so tenable. Yeah, I think it's a case of when conscientiousness moves from being a virtue to a vice, right? Like, I don't think anyone should, you know, I think being conscientious is a really great trait in a clinician. I think when conscientiousness becomes something akin to an addiction or an obsession, then, and when you lose flexibility, that's when you've turned the corner. Melissa, I think you had mentioned really, had done a really nice job of highlighting a lot of the external factors that push us into this corner. I wonder about one internal one is, you know, there's a bit of a grim take, but how many psychologists undertake a PhD with the secret wish that this is going to solve all their self-esteem problems or going to remedy all, you know, a sense of defectiveness or that they're not enough or, or not smart enough. I mean, I don't even want to put a percentage on it, <laughs> but I, I'm guessing it's a lot of, not a low number. And I think that's maybe part of the internal stakes, right? Is that like, I am coming at my education from a place of insufficiency. This PhD will fix it. And then when I get there, I have to fight like hell to maintain that, uh, to, to beat off the cognitive dissonance that's, that's come with this. Uh, Karen, any, any thoughts on, on anything that's been said or is, or is there anything that you wanted to, to add to this idea that we've been playing around with here? Yeah, I mean, I think your point is a is a really interesting one, Pete, because, you know, there, there certainly is some uh, literature talking about, um, you know, the proportion of therapists who've had um, perhaps some trauma in their own lives and, you know, how that kind of pulls us um, perhaps into the profession. And I think, you know, when we think about that, you could certainly see how, you know, if certain uh, events in folks' lives might lead them more to this type of profession, those events could also be contributing to kind of that sense of in inferiority, insecurity, and um, hoping to kind of in some ways feel more um, uh, adequate through obtaining this kind of high status uh, degree. And, you know, I think sadly, <laughs> unfortunately, to just learn that, uh, you know, I remember when I got my PhD, right, you walk across the stage and you go, huh, nothing really changed. <laughs> So, right, I think, what you know, I think sometimes we have this really unrealistic idea about what's going to happen when we kind of finally get through the program, only to realize, oh, my gosh, there's still all this competition and pressure. And, you know, that pattern just kind of keeps keeps going. And, you know, the other issue I just wanted to touch on that relates to what you and Melissa were talking about, um, where I think, 
you know, can feed into that over-identification. Like I know for me personally, when I was going through grad school, I felt like I had to make a lot of sacrifices in terms of spending my time in other pursuits. And, you know, I think after you do that for so long in a grad, in a graduate program, and let's face it, it is really reinforced. Um, it's, it, you know, you get into your, your work and you've lost maybe those other parts of your identity because you've kind of neglected them or sacrificed them. Um, and then it's just so hard to kind of pull back from that. It, it really, really is. What I wanted to do is maybe just rhyme off a few of the signs and symptoms of this challenge that I had come up with. And then perhaps you want to comment on them or, or add your own. And, and I'll do them in short order because I, I, I think if I go through every one uh, as a discussion point, we'll, we'll never get out of the conversation. There's so much I want to talk about. But so a few that came up for me were, you know, signs and symptoms that you might be over identifying as a clinician is maybe a precipitous drop in mood if you're criticized or you make a mistake. Right. So it's sort of this real injury to your core. Uh, maybe finding awkward ways or maybe even inappropriate ways of mentioning that one as a clinician in conversations, kind of, you know, squeezing that in and it doesn't really actually need to be mentioned. Uh, pursuing work at the expense of other activities that could contribute to maybe a more diverse sense of self and and maybe like a growing or or ongoing sense of anxiety or dread related to work uh, along with um unsustainable highs, right? So if things are going really well, maybe you're so on top of the world, but then on Thursday you're, you're crashing because things aren't going well. So really kind of riding the roller coaster, maybe, you know, as a function of how your clinical week is going, something to that effect is me as opposed to maybe having a sense of self that transcends a little bit, you know, at least the, the ups and downs. So I'd be curious, you know, to hear from both of you, you know, what have you heard from people that you interface with or female clinicians or anyone in general around, maybe signs that, you know what, I think I'm, I think I'm gripping the stick a little bit too tight here. Well, I think that was a, a great list, Pete. And one example I'll just quickly share that actually occurred a number of years ago, but has always stood out for me was actually at a, a convention hearing a psychologist talk. And basically she qualified her comments by starting with saying, uh, well, I'm not a real psychologist because she was in more of an administrative role. And uh, thankfully, one of the other individuals at the, the presentation, I think one of the presenters, quickly uh, corrected her and reframed that and, and said, because, by virtue of being in an administrative role, she was actually a powerful psychologist. And I just thought that was such a great reminder of how I think it is so easy for our identity, particularly as a clinician, to be very narrowly defined as I can call myself a psychologist if I do therapy, for example, right? But if I don't do that, or maybe if I do therapy or assessment, right? But if I don't do those things, am I really a psychologist, right? And, uh, and of course, the job is so much broader than that, but it is really easy if we are particularly starting to over-identify with this very narrowly uh, defined idea of what it means to be a psychologist, then, right, we can, we can end up completely discounting the things that we're doing that are still very, very relevant to uh, to the the value that we have to provide in that professional role. So like I said, this was years ago, I think, and as it always just stood out for me so clearly as uh, as just, I think, such an important thing to remember that there, there's so much that goes into these roles and and it's all valuable. 
I totally agree. If I reflect on my respecialization experience, so my PhD was in psychology with a strong emphasis on behavioral neuroscience and ultimately became interested in clinical and did a respecialization. And I remember once I had set my sights on the respecialization goal, I wanted to be part of the club so badly. Like there was just, there's only one way that I could be a legit sort of professional at this point, And it's this, I mean, I don't feel that way now. And it's easy to say on the other side of getting into quote unquote, the club, but I can totally, I can totally understand that very narrow conceptualization. Karen, was there anything that you had wanted to, to add to the conversation here? Yeah, I just uh, wanted to highlight because I think those points that both of you made are are such important ones and kind of that over-identification um, with our uh, career or identity as a psychologist and how that kind of feeds into the imposter syndrome or, or could be related. I think so true. And, you know, I also want to just um, suggest that the opposite might be true for folks with imposter syndrome, where they don't want people to know what they do because they don't want to start engaging in conversations because, oh my gosh, what happens if they ask me about something that I don't know? And right, they're going to discover that I'm a fraud. I, I really don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Isn't it so true and interesting about our job that you know, you can have the same underlying challenge and it's just going to, there's about three different ways it can manifest and it's all this coming from the same place. I was thinking about this earlier, Melissa, you were talking about uh, perhaps there was an earlier perception that imposter syndrome might be more aligned with the female experience. And I was wondering about perhaps there's just different ways of dealing with it, right? Men might in this thought experiment be more prone to a fight response, right? Prone to being maybe more arrogant or overcompensating or like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I can do it. That's not going to look like imposter syndrome, but it's coming from the exact same place. Again, I have no idea whether that would be borne out in reality, but it's always worth considering that, you know, again, fight, flight or freeze can look very different, but it's, it can be the same underlying issue. So I really, I really appreciate that point, Karen. It can look, it can look so different. And I think in, you know, in terms of taking care of each other as colleagues, it's worth being on the lookout for the different ways in which this can show up, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that that feeds so nicely into how imposter syndrome can lead to procrastination or over-preparing, right? That perfectionism piece can kind of take different routes. So I, I do think that's such an important uh, point to remember. Yeah, I found, you know, whenever you come across someone whose, you know, performance is not aligned with maybe expectations that you might have had, like checking in on the anxiety around it is always a good place to start. And that's very often the, the culprit, you know, it's just that it, there's a fear of get, like you said, Karen, getting off the mark, getting it done for fear of failing or, or not wanting to be criticized or just feeling that they're doing a bad job. I've, I've just been amazed at how even, even in sort of established professionals that that can be a dynamic that one has to uh, be, be aware of. All right. So lest we get mired in roles of just you know, <laughs> being merchants of doom and gloom. Uh, why don't we talk about maybe some of the things that we can do to address imposter syndrome and over-identification all with the eye to finding a balance, right? So I think in one of the metaphors I had said at the beginning, I don't think we don't want to craft a way of being where we're swerving all over the road and having a, you know, crushing it one week, but then only to, you know, seriously fall off the wagon the next. We want to find some sort of middle ground that's sustainable over time. So I was wondering if, if either of you had any thoughts on maybe sort of integrating everything that we've said into some actionable kinds of solutions. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, so 
for folks who aren't familiar with Melissa and I, uh, our work and intentional therapists, we, we actually have a, a framework that talks about kind of four pillars of self-care. And, you know, I think actually they can provide a really useful framework for looking at ways to um, address imposter syndrome as well. And, you know, from my understanding, there really hasn't been a lot of research looking at kind of treatments per se for imposter syndrome. Um, and so our, our framework talks about um, connection, compassion, courage, and creativity as the framework that can help guide us with our self-care. And I think when, when you think about imposter syndrome, and maybe I'll just talk a little bit about the first pillar and, and uh, turn it over to Melissa, but our first pillar of connection is really intended to highlight the importance of connecting with information. So in this case, right, taking the time to learn about the hazards of our profession and the surveys of other therapists, right, in terms of kind of validating that uh, idea that we, we're not going to be perfect. There are real challenges. And so it's normal to um, be uncertain sometimes when we're meeting with clients. So gaining some of the information about um, the hazards of our work also, like learning about imposter syndrome and, uh, you know, connecting with information about that, uh, being self-aware, just noticing your response to successes and failures and just uh, taking the time to be a bit more self-reflective. Um, our connection pillar also talks about connecting with other people. So starting to have some conversations about this, let's let's talk about this just, you know, as as. Uh, we're doing right now, I think it's so important. Um, the other piece of our connection pillar is connecting with our values. And I think where that can be so helpful is taking a look at our values and how those might be feeding into imposter syndrome and how we're spending our time, if we're spending it most at work, looking at are there areas of our life and values that we've been neglecting that we actually think are important. Um, that can kind of broaden our identity as well and take us beyond the, the clinical um, identity. And then connecting with our vulnerabilities, right? Are there messages that we got um, related to our gender, um, our racial identity, our sexual orientation, what have you, that might be feeding into um, how we're feeling about ourselves as, as a clinician? Um, and also family messages, right? We're remembering kind of the messaging we may, maybe got growing up and and just being really aware of all of that. That's an amazing start. Melissa, did you want to build on that a little bit? For sure. I, again, I think um, just connecting with all of these ideas, with the new information, with our values, with our strengths and vulnerabilities is, is so key as a place to start. And I think also another foundational piece is just understanding how normal imposter syndrome, or again, as has been kind of suggested, even using instead the term imposter phenomenon to make it uh, just a bit more common and, uh, and and normalize it, right? So just know this is something that is probably going to show up at some point in your career, probably multiple points. And, and that's because it's really normal that it will show up, particularly at transition points, right? So whether it's entering grad school, leaving grad school, starting residency or starting your independent practice, moving from like early career to mid-career, right? Or just these various points along the way. 
leaving an organization, going into private practice, right? There's so many points along one's career path where our reference group might be changing. And that's really a a point at which imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon are are likely to show up. So just knowing from the get-go that this is a normal thing that happens and that there isn't anything actually wrong or defective within us as a result of this showing up. It's just really highlighting that we're we're now kind of comparing ourselves to a different reference group. And, and so that can also maybe even be a helpful sign for ourselves that maybe there's some things we need to reflect on here so that we don't have to get stuck um, in that experience. And I think another piece that is so important that can be valuable um, for organizations like training environments or, you know, just departments or clinics to do is actually provide some modeling around, you know, again, kind of not being a perfect clinician so that people aren't getting these ideas that, that that is what the job looks like. And if you ever falter from that, there's something wrong with you again. Right. So really even in an appropriate way, sharing failures or sharing the fears is sharing um, just the, uh, everything that goes along with the imposter phenomenon. And of course, doing it in a way that people are going to feel safe to be doing that, right? It's You don't necessarily want to just walk up to anybody and start sharing that this is your experience because that's not guaranteed to go well. But if it is done in an intentional, purposeful way, that, that can be really beneficial as well for combating those feelings and normalizing those feelings, which is often going to be a big part of combating them in the first place. So, uh, and I think that also relates to our next pillar of compassion, right? Just giving compassion to ourselves for the reality that there is no perfect clinician. We're not going to be a perfect clinician. Some days we're maybe going to be really firing on all cylinders and other days we're not. And that's okay. We're human. Uh, And just being willing to acknowledge that and give ourselves compassion for the difficulty that that is. Um, And also, again, noticing that that common humanity and that experience that everybody is going to struggle at times. And it's, again, it's partly the nature of the work itself. So really accessing that, that compassion, that's so important for being able to weather the ups and downs of the, the roles that we're in. I just wanted to sprinkle in a few thoughts because a lot came up for me as you're going over that. I, I really have made the effort as a as being in a position of leadership within the practice that I'm a part of to model that vulnerability. And I think my other colleagues have done the same thing. So I think it's really important for younger clinicians, our residents to hear the directors talk about dropping the ball or, you know, learning opportunities or things that we got wrong or, you know, misperceptions that we, that we've been laboring under along the way, because it would only be the truth, right? Like to, to do otherwise would be presenting this disingenuous final curated, you know, image when really, you know, if, if I have any competency about me now, it's been hard earned. I can tell you that. And, you know, to, to that point, like there's a few little, I guess, sort of uh, nuggets that I like to sort of tell my supervisees. Like one of them is, is I love the saying experience is what you get five minutes after you need it. And, you know, that is a perpetual battle. You'll always be like, Oh, okay. Well now I know now that won't help me for what just happened, but I'll be prepared for the next time. And a, a similar one is experts are people who have made every mistake that you can make in a field. And that's actually in part how you become an expert. And I think related to that, like de-escalating black and white thinking about the notion of being an expert or being a professional, most professionals are 
you know, really quite good at a, at a few things, but will be dropping balls occasionally and, and get it wrong. I think we've all had experiences with lawyers or our family doctors or contractors where nice enough folks really trying their best and they make mistakes too. You know, that's, it's just part of dealing with humans. So until chat GPT completely takes over the world, we will have to live with the, uh, you know, the, the ambiguity and beauty of flawed human beings. Uh, Karen, was, was there anything that you had want to sort of loop back into, uh, you know, what's been mentioned so far? Yeah. And I think this just um, aligns so nicely with what you were talking about, uh, Pete, because I think the other part of, of compassion is um, compassion for other therapists, right? And I, and I think if we are modeling things and um, doing the things that you've talked about, Pete, right, being willing to be vulnerable, um, we're going to be less likely to judge other other clinicians. And I think we need to be really mindful of what comes up for us when we see a clinician who's, you know, maybe giving a talk or um, we're reading a report and there's something in there, right? A word is misspelled or, right, some some really kind of minor um, issue or we're, we're seeing a client and they're talking about one of our colleagues and their experience with that colleague mm-hmm. in therapy, perhaps in a negative way. And I think, you know, we need to really be mindful of our judgments towards other therapists, clinicians, um, and, and just kind of keep those in check and remember to extend some compassion to our colleagues as well. Oh, absolutely. And I totally agree with what you said, Karen, where, you know, the, the, Typically, the problematic people in our lives, the ones that irritate us, are the ones that simply just reflect back that which we abhor in ourselves, right? So if we're criticizing someone for making a spelling mistake, it's probably because we harbor a fear or an anxiety or a sense of defectiveness around our own ability to proofread or or whatever. I mean, I think that's just been shown uh, time and time again. One of the things I want to just integrate, you know, before we round out the conversation here is just some like a couple of practical things that I was wondering about or thinking about is, you know, like we we legitimately work in a profession with a lot of changes, the best practices, research, legislation. You know, there's a lot of week over week demands, uh, reports, getting your paperwork done, documentation, calling people back. So, you know, I, I think one can stick one's head in the sand about this or you can say, OK, well, how can I structure this into my week so that it all gets done and there's time left over for the other things that I could, that I need in order to bolster my, my identity. And I think, I think being consistently mediocre beats being perfect one time a month and then, you know, kind of crushing yourself uh, on a Friday as you try to catch uh, up on everything. So I'm not sure what you, but wonder if we could maybe just touch briefly on sort of like the practical application in terms of running one's practice. Like what would that look like? Uh, or what could it look like? Or what are some things, what's a mentality that we could curate around this? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with some ideas and Karen, please um, add to this. But I, I think back to your comment earlier, Pete, about there being no perfect clinician, I think this then also extends to dare to be average, right? <laughs> so, and, and which isn't, of course, to mean, you know, be lazy or put in the minimum requirement but to recognize that we don't need perfection in all spheres and that often good enough truly is good enough. And, and, and I think again, back to our pillars, this is really where courage is often required, right? Being willing to tolerate that it's maybe not going to feel so great sometimes to not put in a hundred percent effort, but to be able to realize that 
there's going to be certain things that it's totally okay to do a good enough job on, especially if that's going to free up time for other things where we maybe do need to put a little bit more effort into them, whether it's active effort or uh, some thought before we take the action. Right. And, you know, just like on a really simple logistical level, uh, you know, as you said, I think the, the, Allure often is to stick our head in the sand on certain things. For example, of course, one of the big challenges for many people at one time or another is getting behind on notes, right? And I think that's something that it's so easy to avoid, procrastinate on, just head in the sand. And of course, none of that makes that problem any better. It just makes it grow. And and so this is very much an example of where courage is so important, right? Being willing to kind of just really honestly look at, okay, what is the issue? What's getting in the way of getting these notes done? And, and also I think being really realistic about the, the bounds of time, right? There is only so much time in a day, in, in a week. And often the simple reason that people aren't getting notes done is because they don't have enough time scheduled in their day to get the notes done, or they do schedule the time, but uh, it gets eaten up by other things. And that are less aversive than, than doing the notes, especially if you're behind on notes, right? So I think just being really willing to look at if there's things that are getting in the way or as well as things that are, are really, <clears throat> excuse me, keeping us so tightly held to an identity as a clinician without making space for any other identity, just again, having that courage to look at where is that coming from? Why is that happening? How is it showing up for me? And then also having the courage to start to take even just some small steps to change that so that we can have a really different experience. And we might've shared this phrase before, but I think it's really um, appropriate here as well. One of the ways that Karen and I really like to think of self-care generally is it's creating a life we don't have to escape from. And sometimes that's easy and simple and fun. And sometimes it's really difficult and again, requires a lot of courage to make possible for ourselves. Yes. I, I love that saying. I've repeated it so many times. If you, if you both collectively had an, a dime for every time I have said that you'd, you'd have a lot of money. Karen, I'll, I'll flip it over to you in a moment. I just want to pick up on something that Melissa said. I, I think one pivot that I've tried to make, which I found really helpful is becoming more comfortable living with my practice being sort of in a steady state of undoneness as opposed to being like completely put together. Like when Friday at 4 PM rolls around, like everything's done, everything's put away. I've just come to live with 10 or 15% of that, you know, not being the case. And I think the, the diminishing returns of trying to get everything done as opposed to like taking the extra half hour on Monday after I've had a weekend of rest, uh, makes a huge difference. I'll also say really quick, cause it just popped into my mind. I picked this up in grad school. I noticed I did much better playing guilty, if I can say that way, where if I go out and sort of party on the weekend and, and have fun, I was much more engaged Monday through Friday than if I was sort of working all weekend and then sort of just kind of grinding myself down. So uh, I, I'm not sure there's many clinicians that are going out and partying on <laughs> every, every weekend, but from a grad school lens, I think I think everyone gets the idea. There's obviously the adult version of that. But uh, Karen, was there anything that you had wanted to add to the conversation just around, again, like practical ways one could live out what we are talking in the scope of one's practice? Yeah. So, I, you know, I certainly agree with everything Melissa talked about with courage. And, you know, I think the willingness to experience 
some discomfort for the sake of our overall wellness. And it does take some discomfort if, if you're higher on that um, spectrum of, of imposter syndrome. Um, but your comment also, Pete, really kind of brings us so nicely to our last pillar, actually, which is kind of creativity, playfulness, humor. And, um, you know, just thinking about like the heaviness of our work and how um, having being able to view things with some humor when appropriate, even using humor in our sessions when appropriate, can just really lighten some of the, the heaviness that, that comes with our work. And, you know, I think there's also something very therapeutic for therapists when they're involved in producing something like tangible. So doing some creative pursuits, because I think that's the other uh, theme we hear a lot in therapists, right? The work we do is so valuable, but it's not really something that you can take home and show somebody, right? And share with somebody. It's it's just kind of... Uh, just a bit odd in that respect. And as you said earlier, right, Pete, we work alone typically. So, uh, so I think doing something creative with our hands, uh, you know, we know has so much benefit um, and, and it produces something tangible that we can share with somebody. So I think play creativity is so important and, and maybe more specific to imposter syndrome, when I think of kind of adopting a playful attitude or approach, you know, I think of some of the ACT um, uh, strategies, which are related to kind of diffusion. So kind of putting some space between ourselves and our thoughts and, you know, even a willingness to try and say some of those um judgments about ourselves in silly voices or singing a song about it to try and bring some lightness and humor to it as a way of, of again, just putting some distance between ourselves and uh, some of those unrealistic standards or, or unhelpful thoughts we might have. Right. Well, Karen and Melissa, thank you so much for all the thoughtful responses to some of the, you know, the topics that I prompted us around today. I really enjoyed the conversation. As usual, I always wish we had two, three hours because I think there's there's so much that we could, uh, you know, continue to unpack around this. But hopefully, we've done the topic some justice. If folks want to learn more about intentional therapists or any of the initiatives or projects or podcasts that you have ongoing, where would you direct them? Of course, people can go to our website, just intentionaltherapist.ca, and our podcast is Thrivival One Hundred One. Spellcheck doesn't love it, but that is that is how it is said and spelled, <laughs> Thrivival 101, a fresh take on self-care for female mental health clinicians. All right. Well, excellent. Why, well, of course, encourage everyone to go check out the website and, and the podcast. Uh, thank you both so much for being here today. It was great to catch up with both of you, staunchly friends of the podcast. So it was so nice to have you back and uh, I'll really look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much, Pete. We look forward to that as well. Yeah. Thanks as always. No problem. Take really good care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. 
Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.